Good morning, uh, ladies and gentlemen, listening to this. I'm Fernando Zrigotti, editor of Minor Literature, and today I'm uh, interviewing authors and editor from uh, Dodos Inc. Trauma and Anthology, uh, essays about art and mental health. I got uh, Naomi Frisbee here, I got James Miller, I got Tamim Sadikale, and Tom Quell, who is the editor and also has a piece in uh, one of the editors with Sam Mills and who also has a piece in this uh, anthology. Good morning. How are you guys? Yeah, good. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> 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 oh, oh, good for that, yeah. <laughs> we need to talk. So, uh, right, let, thanks for doing this Saturday morning here at 10 a.m. It's not the best uh, date. We all look very, very tired, so I'm glad we're not, <laughs> I'm glad we're not releasing the video of this. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, okay, let's, let's start. Tom, I mean, can you tell me how this anthology came to be? What was the rationale behind it? Yeah, um... I wasn't sure if I should name names in this, but I think uh, I think uh, it's, it's the cat's already out of the bag on that. We were really frustrated, I think, um, with the way that writing about mental health had become quite sort of cliched, quite banal. Um, Matt Haig, obviously, the king of that. <laughs> and we thought, you know, it's a story that, Kind of, or an issue that affects so many people and we wanted to really look at how kind of quite an, get an unvarnished view of people's stories and the way that how mental health had affected their their work or how their work had affected their mental health as a sort of two-way street and yeah how artists writers creative people had dealt with problems how it had affected their work um it sort of, it came from sort of a series of conversations about that. We just wanted to get as wide a perspective as we could, like get some really experienced writers, get some new writers, get writers from one and just yeah, try and get a little bit closer to the truth maybe than what we were seeing in terms of uh, how mental health was being discussed. And it's, it's quite a weird anthology to put together because we create, created a hit list of writers we wanted to talk to. And then when you approach people, basically, you have to sort of send them an email and say, we think you're mad. Do you want to write us an essay about that? And, every, and every, pretty much everyone did. No one came back and said, why would you be talking to me about that? <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask. I'm, I'm glad you brought the the... The, the names, you know, I mean, uh, um, it is a, a bit of a saturated market in a way, you know, now these days that uh, mental health there's full of these gurus <laughs> who are preaching a very, very neoliberal idea of mental health. Like it's almost like a private property that seems to be unaffected by class and, 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 and race. You know, that's the kind of uh, the message that comes across. And, and I feel it's really, really toxic for me, you know. Yeah, um, that that's a, that's a huge thing. There's a great book on um, that Repeater put out called Mindfulness, which yeah. is talking about the way that recently sort of corporations have tried to put the responsibility for mental health back onto individuals. You know, they say, well, we will provide you a Pilates lesson. You're still going to be working too long and not getting paid enough. But now you've got... Uh, hotline that you can chat for 10 minutes of therapy so you sh it's your job to be okay now 
Yeah, going baths. Yeah, that's uh, the new the new way of coping with alienation. Instead of a pay rise and working less, they give you a gong bath or Pilates yoga classes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, You know, my wife's a doctor, so what she gets is you know clapped. (laughs) And and I ask you, um, you know, how do you, as an editor, how do you make sure that you not when you commission a collection like this, you know, how do you make sure you don't repeat the, you don't tread the same path of, of those, uh, you know what I'm thinking here, what Mark Fisher used to call, uh, used to call it magical voluntarism, you know, this idea that it only depends on you to make the change that, the, the, and uh, this is, I think it's very dangerous, you know, because some people, it's not up to them, you know. There are contextual situations that affect people's mental health. So you as an editor, I mean, how do you make sure you wouldn't end up repeating that? Do you, do you brief I the mean, authors or? I think we're really lucky actually with the authors that we had. We we really didn't need to do very much. You know, we could trust people to mm. have an interesting point of view and have a point of view that stood outside of kind of a sort of mainstream discourse you know part of editing is always just sort of asking extra questions help digging a little bit deeper but I think for the most part people came with stories that they wanted to tell and things that were really quite personal to them mm. it was um yeah it was a really interesting experience getting to read these people's stories sort of for the first time and it was very intimate I think in a lot of cases because yeah. Yeah, we do, like, actually, there wasn't a lot of probing to do because people had really put themselves on the page. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think there are, uh, you, the four of you wrote pieces for this anthology, obviously. I mean, uh, you, Tom, as well. I mean, um, and there are, I would say they are uh, different in the sense, uh, I don't know, Naomi, Tamim, that you're dealing with very personal issues, you know, in a way. I think uh, James and Tom are, are probably dealing with, more with uh, with the political side of mental health. Is they're different. Uh, I mean, your pieces are political in a different way, in a personal way. So, how do you write about something that is so intimate, so personal? This is a question for you, Naomi and Tamim, if you want. to. I think I just um, splurged it on the page, really, to start with. Like, <laughs> I, I no, no one ever sees my early drafts because it was just get everything down and then start from there to shape it into something that was readable to someone else, I think. So, yeah, I really did do the Hemingway <laughs> blood on the page <laughs> bit to start with. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, um, I will come back to your piece. I want to ask you something about about it in in in, polit- in, in the politics of, of it, you know. But uh, Tamin, uh, in the meantime, can you tell me, like? Yeah, sure. I I just want to say when I when I first got the um, email from Tom, my my initial reaction was, why are you sending this to me? And <laughs> I, you know, instantly I'm offended. And and then I thought about it for two seconds and thought, actually, no. I'm not offended. There's that, and I'm a complete bloody wreck. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that initial initial offence sort of faded pretty pretty quickly. <laughs> um, um, no, in, in terms of um, yeah, I I I, I thought um, you know there's there's only one there's only one way to approach this, which is to just be really honest. I mean, uh, you know, it's 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 kind of a it's, it's it's an almost uncom- uncomfortable subject to talk about here, but you know people talk about being an alcoholic or um, 
a drug addict and you know it's 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 not got that same kind of um veil over it as you know what what i what i went through in my my early years but i just thought you know what between between me and this blank page um you know that there's there's nothing and i should just i should just um you know just let it all let it all come out so yeah just no no inhibitions on the page um between me and the editor and you know i feel good about it it's all right yeah, yeah. Let, I, I, did, I'm, I realize I'm doing the things upside down. So let me briefly <laughs> say what your pieces are about. Uh, yeah. uh, Naomi's uh, piece deals with a relationship that is uh, very toxic, uh, gaslighting. Probably people use the terminology, you know, when people seem to to care about you, but actually forcing their own uh, ideas in a way. Uh, Tamim's piece deals with addiction to pornography. James' piece deals with... Uh, with the unreal of the current moment uh, with Trump and all Brexit and how it affects your your own, uh, perception of reality and Tom's piece deals with denialism we could say is that uh, right negationism denialism how would you call it? yeah I think right. yeah denialism is it's not my term it's something I picked up from an essay that I started reading during lockdown but I think it's a really useful one yeah so yeah, specifically around COVID, but then branching out into the way people deal with uncomfortable realities around them. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, I, I said I was going to come back to Naomi's piece because one of the things that struck me about your piece is how um, class seems to be a determinant in people's the way we repeat certain patterns. No? Is a, did I read it right? Or. <laughs> Yeah, you did. And it's something that didn't really come out for me until I started writing it. I mean, you can tell by speaking to me that I'm working class. I grew up in Barnsley. I don't uh, know. I cannot tell accent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, English people listening will be able to tell. But um, yeah, and I hadn't really, because I mean, most of my work is about class, but I hadn't actually considered it from that point of view until I started writing it. And yeah, absolutely. It's about repeating patterns from childhood um, and then yeah and then it bleeding into your own adult life and at which point that becomes a problem and then what do you do about it and you know part of the piece is about the fact that I didn't do anything about it <laughs> really <laughs> until it was forced upon me and then I had to confront it and work out you know why I was attracted to a particular type of person and what that was doing to me and and what my sort of not that I I well complicit in a sense but I don't it's it becomes a really dodgy area because you're talking about emotional abuse and actually the emotional abuser shouldn't be abusing but what is it I, I, I wanted to know what was it about me that was attracting those people and what could I do to try and put some barriers in or negate what was happening to me yeah take control no and and, yeah. and and is this something you were aware before you started writing or that you discovered you discovered through the process of writing this piece or how, how did that happen that I awareness just, i mean yeah i i think i i just started to become aware of it and then when it when you know i said i splurged everything on the page and when i did that i noticed like how many patterns and there were things that i dismissed previously that you know were weren't coincidences but I had dismissed as coincidences because you know how do you reconcile with the fact that someone you're in a relationship with is deliberately using things that you've told them about you to then harm you like you know 
you put a barrier in somewhere be- to protect yourself and it was the wrong barrier but that's what i did mm, yeah yeah, yeah that, that, that was one of the the striking parts of your piece i think that that i that i, I stay with me you know how how to put those barriers effectively and and how to put the effective barriers because sometimes i uh, i was um reading you know about your the, the situation about food for example that it yeah. seems to be like uh, there was a rejection to to feeding and cooking like, as, if, as if that was uh, the, the 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 weapon you know to to stop that but uh, probably it's actually backfiring because then you end up <laughs> eating things that you don't want to eat or, or not treating yourself in the right way so yeah it's funny it's it's that um, idea of displacing things isn't it that you yeah. you target your anger I suppose it's it speaks to Tom's essay in a sense that it's targeting that anger at a different place not the place that you you know you should be at and for me you know it should have been at the person that I'd allowed into my life but instead it was yeah coming back on myself and you know I'm half Italian, so that part was traumatic for me. You know, well, food is like a, <laughs> it's a very important part of my life. You yeah. know, it's a, in a and a, probably I'm obsessed about food. So it was like, oh my god, you know, you no, know, cook yourself a good meal. You know, it, <laughs> so yeah, really, I'm definitely I, with you now. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> right, so uh, James, um, I know, I know, we 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 know for a long time. I know you are obsessed with politics. And uh, and your essay is pretty much about that obsession with politics. And uh, but why 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 is it about American politics? Are you so uh, connected? Well, I guess I guess it's interesting. I mean, when I was first approached to write write something for this anthology, my initial kind of reaction was like, well, I don't really have any mental health issues. I'm I'm fairly. I disagree. You know, I, but... <laughs> exactly um, and then I was like well I, I feel like I'm a relatively calm person because I, I practice transcendental meditation so I was like I'll write about transcendental meditation and then Sam was like you can't write about that because David, David Lynch, Lynch is going to write about that <laughs> so it's like well okay I mean I love David Lynch fair enough fair enough let's not tread on his toes so I get my essay is sort of part of a longer kind of um <clears throat> I suppose process of intellectual inquiry that I'm I'm embarked on, which is to try and analyze and understand, or, or, or rather, critique critique the extent to which we as writers are able to engage meaningfully in the kind of social and kind of political reality that surrounds us, uh, and how far that sort of the way in which that socio political reality is constructed has itself become radically kind of divorced from actual reality itself uh, in the sense that we now have a kind of a media class and a political class that um, either are either kind of forms of sort of celebrity and like celebrities are just engaged in a permanent kind of shitstorm of sort of image management and attention seeking which in some ways I think is how we can kind of define the Trump presidency you know I think it's debatable whether Trump was ever a president in any meaningful mm-hmm. kind of sense of the word and although he's a fascist and a racist he never had a meaningful kind of fascist, racist kind of program like, uh, you know, like his influences like Hitler or Mussolini had, um, other, other than a kind of sort of crude nativism and, and, and sort of restoration of a kind of America that never existed as, as his kind of gaslighting program. So he was essentially just a celebrity fighting a kind of shitstorm of image management and kind of agenda domination. And his main preoccupation was what are other celebrities and what is the media sort of saying about me? So on the one hand, we had that. And then on the other hand, over here, we have a kind of, because we're a less extreme country than America. So 
uh, a government didn't hasn't you know it's it's not quite as extreme in terms of its sort of celebrity bullshit, but it's nonetheless a kind of a regime that's that's very much devoted to gaslighting uh, and distracting the country. Um, of which Brexit is a sort of a very a very kind of crafty example because here's a case in which we know that the people who were advocating Brexit were lying. And everyone in the media class that promoted their views know that they were lying too. And indeed, I suspect a large number of people who voted for them and voted for Brexit knew that they were lying as well. So we're in this sort of strange kind of circulation of, of lies after lies after lies. And I suppose my piece, yeah, it's just trying to sort of think about how can we actually, how can we critique this society? How can we make kind of meaningful change? And also, what what is the impact on our on our kind of mental health to be to be in this sort of situation? And I suppose part of my thesis as well is that for a long time, the Anglo-American world has been under a kind of a delusion. It's a sort of an exceptionist delusion. You know, it's, it's, it's the belief that we're somehow better than other countries, that our institutions are more progressive, um, that, that our, our relationship with empire was benevolent, that we've always had the best intentions, et cetera, et cetera. And it seems to me that now this 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 delusion is sort of beginning to finally kind of crumble, and we're seeing that rather than the rest of the world becoming like us, <clears throat> we are in fact becoming more like certain other parts of the rest of the world. So it seems to me that we're we're actually much closer now to say Putin's Russia than we are to uh, the ideal model of a sort of sensible rational social democracy but do you think that sorry do you think that ever existed that 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 sensible rational democracy in the at least in the case of america or the the uk i i think it depends how far you want to take your critique really Mm. um and i think if you were to take a if you were to take um a very rigorous leftist critique you you could undermine that idea at any point but it does seem to me that you had some presidents and you've had some governments that were at least operating under a certain kind of um, demeanor of, of kind of ra- of being sort of rational, of having certain interests that they were kind of safeguarding, of not of not pushing the envelope too far in certain kind of directions. Uh, you know, in the sense that I think that there is a, I think that there is a actually a vast kind of difference between say the presidency of someone like Bill Clinton who's very problematic in lots of ways but nonetheless his presidency compared to someone like Donald Trump I think I think we were in a different kind of order um, of, of of well I kind of call it derangement there I think the kind of the derangement kind of truly came to the surface um, with sort of the Trump presidency and also with the kind of Johnson I think it's important to to divide the what is probably internal politics and foreign policy of the USA. I don't think that the foreign policy of the USA ever can be sane, you know. Like I don't know Biden, who I was relieved, like everyone got elected instead of Trump. But it's already bombed in Syria, or the kids are still in cages, you know. <laughs> it's uh, it's very difficult. I mean, probably I'm biased, you know. South American, we are trained from a very early age to to be wary of the USA you know well, well that's it isn't it because if you're if you're from Latin America you kind of know the truth of these things and you also have a very different relationship to the body politic and to the political class because you know you're used to kind of um 
military dictators, fascists, and other, and other sorts kind of grinding yeah. your country into 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 the ground. You know, Gen- generally backed by the USA, also, you know, which is yes, exactly <laughs> makes you even more more worried. I think your 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 pieces dialogue very well, Tom and and, and James, because uh, you know I think there is a what you mentioned about this exceptionalism is probably another way of thinking about denialism. You know, this idea that. That the things that are happening here are not really happening, you know, and it, and and they they crystallize very well in the management of the COVID crisis, you know, in the UK. Yeah, yeah I, I think it, I think it's an interesting one with what James is saying because in like his piece in many ways talks about the derangement of events as they happen, and mine is about the response to events after they've happened. In many ways, mm-hmm. in terms of when we know there's difficult, uncomfortable things that have happened within a society, whether that's the aftermath of the coup and the dictatorship in Chile or the aftermath of COVID here, do we choose to confront those things and have a kind of very public inquest? Do we try to forget about them? How, and both paths are very difficult, you know, both paths require trauma victims to either publicly revisit what happened to them or bury it under the carpet and pretend to be friends with everyone again and uh, but yeah, that's a, that's acknowledge... a british way of, uh, of managing things isn't it <laughs> in general but i think it's something you know when i've read books about latin america there's this thing of you know is the person you walk down the street with were they a member of the hunter were they a torturer and you know these people in the aftermath of uh, the second world war people in the german government who had been highly involved in the fascist government and are allowed to really reintegrate into society and it's just not spoken about until the 60s or 70s when it yeah, and, until, issue again. Yeah, until you get the bottom mind of gang uh, yeah, snapping exactly. them and shooting them <laughs> yeah it's a, th- that's the thing it always comes back to bite you in a way if you don't address it things you know um, which is no we do many things badly in argentina but i think the way that we went over the dictatorship i think is uh, i'm quite pleased that most of them ended up in prison or died in prison you know for years, it was open, you know, and uh, in 1990 or 1991, the president, the then president, who died recently, um, Menem, I, I need to touch wood when I name his really bad luck, um, he he released all the dictators, you know, and they were free until the, the, the trials restarted in 2006 or 2005, and the, the, they're still ongoing, you know, this is a long process. We're talking about dictatorship that ended in 1983. So it's almost 40 years of, of dealing with that past. And I think very different, but with the case of uh, Empire, we, uh, and, and this, the process is still ongoing and open because they never took the the, the trouble to address that, you know? Uh, your piece mentions the Black Lives Matter movement and, and, and this idea. Some people get really uncomfortable when, when, when they bring out that this is also a racist country, like any country, you know? Yeah, absolutely. People have this exceptionalist view that Britain is a he is a welcoming, sort of diverse, happy melting pot. And yeah. you know, I've got where I I live in a small rural conservative constituency, and the Quakers. I'm sorry to hear that. I, I know it's <laughs> the, the, it's awful. Um, the, 
but there's a small Quaker meeting house and they put up a Black Lives Matter flag, Black Lives Matter flag and it was burnt. Jesus. And I think the symbolism of that is so, it was so shocking and so vile, you know. Christ. Well, they, well. Yeah, we, we, we spoke to them and they were like, some of their, their neighbours had knocked on their door and said, you know, your garden's on fire and someone had come and set fire to this banner. Christ. And, Christ. you know, that really... But, you know, I'm sure everyone would, everyone in this village probably sees themselves as very tolerant and very welcoming. And, you know, you don't have to scratch the surface very yeah. much to find that that's not true. Very few mm. people would say, I'm a racist, you know, openly. <laughs> it takes a very special kind of racist for that. Right, cool, excellent. So let, let me, uh, I want to talk to Tamim. Uh, your, your piece, like, um, it's a very intimate thing, you know, to, to write about. And um, why do you think... You mentioned other addictions before, you know, people openly say I'm an alcoholic or, or I'm a recovering addict. Why, why do you think yeah. pornography is not recognized as a, as a problem many times or is I normalized? And, and is, is, there a, is there a possible way of having a healthy relationship with that? Like, I don't know, some people have a drink of wine. Yeah, no, um, sure, sure. Uh, is it, uh, I mean, you know, you watch, you watch the, uh, what is it, the Love Honey advert late at night and... Um, yeah, you know, I, 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 I don't know if I think the short answer is I, I don't know if you can have a healthy relationship with it. I think. Um, yeah, leaving aside the moral debate. You know, yeah, or, no, no, no. I'm, I'm, I am leaving that aside. Um, you know, can can one in, in enjoy it in a in a in a contained way, even as part of a, a relationship, whether individually or as part of a relationship? Um, maybe maybe you can. I, I don't know. Um, um, you know that just wasn't my experience i mean i you know as a as a as an adolescent boy um you know i discovered porn and you know well there's nothing unusual in that right i mean in fact everybody does um but um you know as as my sort of peers matured in in their lives and you know went on from there to furtive relationships and first kisses and you know sex drugs and rock and roll and just adult life 360 degrees and I ended up just stuck firmly stuck in that first groove um and um yeah it's um it, you know it, it took it took many years I was I was quite content I mean I, I don't I wouldn't go as far as to say I was I was I was a happy child a happy adolescent but you know I was content in my own little little bubble um you know I had I, I had a couple of interests both were solitary porn and maths and <laughs> that that was really it yeah um and it was only until I was um you know say 18 19 20 that I was able to just take a step back I'm 47 by the way so we're talking yeah. about events okay. from you know, more than half a lifetime ago. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't until I was sort of 19, 20 that I, I was able to, you know, take a step back and and just look at my life, uh, you know, from the outside and, and just think, what, what on earth are you doing? You know, something is going horribly wrong here and you need to make a change. But, um, you know, sort of, coming back to your earlier question but by then I was you know I was absolutely an addict and I just couldn't stop um 
and and so so yeah you know from my own side there was just no question of having a healthy relationship with this thing um but but yeah i was i was down i was down down a one-way track by then so yeah and, and the way the uh, i mean it seems to me like the way you overcame this addiction is through writing which is amazing yeah. and that's yeah um so you know i'd, I'd, I'd I hadn't even read Fernando, let alone written, um, and, until that point. I mean, I, I did a degree in pure maths, and um, yeah, books were just not my thing. Um, and uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I don't know what it was. I just, I just kind of just stumbled into it, I, and um, you know, I that you know creative writing i mean there was there were, you know we've we everybody on this call will understand the sort of innate intrinsic beauty of storytelling and that immediately gripped me um uh, as well as you know the challenge of constructing a neat sentence and then from one sentence to a paragraph and then scaling out from there um it, it, in fact you know it was it was an obsession and maybe I'm an obsessive kind of person because I almost overnight just switched from one obsession to another, but, you know, of course, you know, one's, one's healthier. And, um, and, and even though I was, it was fiction that I was writing. And so, you know, there was, you know, some um, element of some distance between myself and, and and my characters um in totality and the story i was trying to write um but beneath the surface i was definitely unpacking myself as well and yeah, i mean that was just so it was so therapeutic um to you know i i would i'd be writing especially one one particular character and you know i was was just really just seeing how i fell into this thing and managed to stay within this little world of porn and maths for so long um it sounds bizarre but that was that was my life for you know seven eight years um and um yeah it was it was only through the process of writing that i could i could see how how i i fell into it and stayed within that world and was, was basically trapped there yeah Yeah, I can see. I mean, uh, in in the way I understand addiction, it's a way of filling empty empty time. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a, and, and I think writing also has a, a ability, but probably in a more open way. Because if you're writing to publish, you are in a, you're in a dialogue. You know, um, yeah, it's less solipsistic than than pornography, I guess. You know, that, yeah, that kind of, it's a, so yeah, that, that that was fascinating. Naomi, do you feel that writing helped you in your process of coming to terms with with uh, what was going on in your life or it has done but i i'm kind of amused i'm always amused when someone says it's therapeutic and that's not a, a you know a judgment on tamin but i don't find it therapeutic at all and i'm really intrigued by people who do um i found it quite painful actually um because it was reliving lots of things that i didn't want to particularly relive but yeah since then um since having written it so i wrote it I wrote the first draft about two years ago, I think now. So yeah, since it, like it has helped since then, and like the cooking's got lots better as well. So that's an ad <laughs> added bonus. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Yeah, I, I was going to ask everyone because this, um, like, uh, it must be 
when you're writing about mental health and your own uh, things, issues or problems, it, it must be you relieve part of those, you know, when you're writing. So I was, I, 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 I was going to ask if you felt like next uh, you, to reconnect with this, it was in a way painful. You know, it's um, I I I avoid writing about myself a lot. You know, although I I use the first person a lot, what comes to the page is so filtered by fiction. You know. Uh, and that it's not. Re- I don't feel it's me, you know. So I, I, I don't know if I would be able to write personally about like uh, my own mental health. I think you know I avoided. Uh, I avoided it for a long time, <laughs> and I probably will continue to do so. Uh, I, I feel it's really brave to do that, and, and I'm not sure I'm that brave. I can write about some aspects of myself, but not about my, my own, the things that I feel intimate, really intimate. Right. So, uh, Tom, um, how did the um, COVID, the, the crisis of the COVID madness, change this anthology? Because it's like to to get a book out that can be quite painful during this moment feels like you know it could be adding to the, to, to people's trauma, you know, in a way. But how do you, what do you do in order to uh, to avoid that? And it, it's it is a it's a really difficult period. Um, like trauma was largely written and um, kind of put together before um, before COVID happened. Really, it's then taken quite a long time to actually get it produced and out there. And in some ways, it's you know the books come along at the right time because as soon as we came out and said we're doing this serious look at mental health and creativity, I think there was really an eagerness for people to you know people wanted to read about that it was something that's going to speak to people but readers have had a really sort of varied responses to it there are people who've sort of contacted me and said I have bought this but also I can't read it yet because everything's too difficult um in terms of like I say most of the actual writing was done I think for all small publishers, COVID's had a huge impact. And that can be things like um, Waterstones obviously reducing their orders because they've not got shops open. And, you know, that sort of hand selling and recommendation that small booksellers do, it is really vital for indie presses. And again, that's not something that can really happen at the moment. And then things like books being delayed because our warehouse had to shut down for two weeks because of a COVID outbreak. So there's... Yeah, there's all sorts of things happening and it's try, really trying hard to find different ways of getting out to people because we can't do events in shops. We can't have books on display. So it, it has affected uh, your, your yeah, operation. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just hard to get that sort of the sense that something has really happened from a virtual event or from you know, not being able to go into a shop and go, oh, there's a, there's a book on a shelf, which is, you know, the nice feeling at the end of it all. James, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what, what we were talking on um, this idea of deranged reality. No? Re- you, you, I think it's your term, deranged realism. Yeah, like uh, how we live, we seem to be living in a simulacrum, you know, to misquote Baudrillard. But how do you think the COVID situation is affecting that crisis of reality will it make it worse will it make us will it bring us back to reality like with a with a knock you know or 
I, I'm not sure. I guess maybe a bit of both. It, it's certainly been an acceleration, an accelerant, and an, an intensifier. So we do see that there are people. We all occupy the same space, but there are people who inhabit radically different realities now that are very hard to kind of connect together. Uh, we kind of see this, you know, with the COVID denialists and the kind of the anti-vaxxers and, and that sort of thing. There's an outright sort of rejection of science. And I think I read the other day that, um, let me try and get the kind of the quote correct, but it was something like the, the five largest sources of medical misinformation on the internet hmm. reach an audience 10 times greater than the five official sources of medical information on the internet so the internet accelerates this kind of dislocation from reality and the dissemination of, of sort of alternative sort of realities and you just need to look at say the twitter feed of someone like naomi wolf you know a, a once great feminist thinker who whose twitter feed now is this terrifying parallel reality that um you know, suggest that actually we haven't really progressed that much since the dark ages when people believed that the world was flat and, and that they could kind of drown witches or that there were devils lurking here and there, that sort of same kind of fundamental sort of superstitions and, and disconnections exist. And I guess it's, it's sort of troubling that it's, I guess it's further sort of compartmentalizing us into our own kind of chosen ideological viewpoints. Um, because there is, there's a loss, isn't there? There's a loss of presence this would be a nicer discussion. It's great that we can have this discussion online and it's great that we can be in different parts of the country, but there would be a different sort of feeling produced if we could have had this discussion in a cafe or a pub, you know, over a Certainly. few kind of drinks and, and, and have had some hugs and handshakes or, or, or such like. So I, I feel that, you know, we need, a, we need a little bit of a reconnection and we need a little bit of a kind of grounding after this is all over. I think there's a fundamental human need for kind of human social kind of contact and connection, which we're all being deprived of. And it's not as bad as it could be because we have these virtual means to connect, but it's still, it's still harmful. Yeah. I was, uh, this idea of, um, yeah, separation, you know, we are, we are connected, isolated. I think it will take time for us to, 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 to overcome this. You know, I, I can see with my own daughter, you know, the way that, She's ten, you know. They 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 miss a whole year of being with the peers, you know, and it's not the same on Zoom. But anyway, let's not complain. We can do it because we got that. So that's not that bad, right? So I I want to ask one closing question to everyone. I mean, like, how do you feel writing about this has changed your mental health? Do you think it helped you, like, in a way, like, in, in uh, for the future, not for you have a healthy connection with your mind by writing? I, 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 Naomi, I think you, you don't think it's therapeutic to write. So. <laughs> Why <laughs> um, write? <laughs> I, I don't know, like you, I think I, I prefer, I find fiction more therapeutic because I can bury whatever it is that I'm thinking about or concerned with or whatever's happening, I can bury it in a story and I write like, you know, fantastical type things so you know you really can bury it then because you can bury it in you know someone who, lo who loses body parts or you know that sort of <laughs> that sort of thing and pretend that it's got nothing to do with you so yeah. that's that's therapeutic um in terms of this i mean it has helped it has and reading the anthology has been really interesting because there are lots of connections between the different pieces and i've learned lots from you know reading other people's perspectives and the things that they've found difficult so yeah definitely in that sense cool tamim how do you feel this will uh 
drive you um, to your future I mean, projects and so on? Yeah. Like? Um, future future writing projects, um, sure. I mean, in terms of, you know, was it a direct benefit in terms of me and, uh, you know, my, my, my historic problems? I, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I already had that sort of self-awareness, um, um, you know, I, I live a, a very kind of aware life now and, um, you know, um, uh, you know, I recognize that little voice, um, you know, telling me that, you know, it's all right, I can I can kick back and cut loose and whatever. And, you know, I know how to deny him. I knew that before I wrote the piece. Um, but, um, yeah, so so no, there's no direct sort of u- utility from from this particular piece in, in that specific sense. But, um, yeah, no, look, I. I've always loved well since since I started writing. I mean, it's it's been it's been a crutch that I've used for for a long time. So, um, yeah, and I, I'd not written nonfiction before either. So, yeah, that was that was interesting. Getting oh. it right, honing it. That was that was good. Cool, James. You think uh, you you're gonna use uh, you're gonna get less angry on Twitter now after this piece? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I mean, unfortunate that I am. Um... I help run a couple of other much more significant Twitter accounts than my own, which has actually proved to be very healthy because <laughs> the stuff I used to tweet about that was ignored, when I, when I tweet it through these other means, it, it reaches the better audience. And, and so I find that quite a helpful... You are with ex- Extinction Rebellion, yeah? You manage their account. I'm possibly, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I would agree with Naomi that, um, you know, I'm slightly sceptical skeptical about the therapeutic benefits of of writing except that I also notice that if I don't write for a kind of a period of time I begin to feel like I'm going insane so I, I do have to kind of write for the sake of my sort that, of yeah. sanity and I'd almost make a couple of slight other distinctions in that for me kind of creative writing is often quite mad like I my behavior when I'm kind of writing is often quite erratic um, I need to be sort of it's, yeah, I, I mean, if I was observed, if I saw myself, I think someone would be like, look at that person. There is something crazy about that person. But I, I'm kind of yearning for the time, and, and writing this article was a little bit like that. I, and maybe I'll never have this time again, but if, if I could have a space free from uh, many other pressures where I could just go back to the library and actually do some rigorous research and then get my thoughts in order, of which this essay was a small ordering of what do I actually think about these things, um, I, I think that achieving that kind of clarity does does enable you to have a little bit of extra sort of self-awareness and self-consciousness, which is beneficial. It's just stepping outside of the kind of madness all the time. Um, yeah, well, there's too many things get in the way, but you'll, you'll get there. Don't worry. I mean, I, I know that you've got a small child, young child. Things get, you, you will recover your time. You will go back to a library. So don't panic about that. <laughs> I need my library. I need the library. <laughs> Tom, how do you, I mean, as a writer of an essay, but also as the editor of this anthology, how do you think it has uh, affected you? For me, the essay really came sort of at the the right time for me. Um, I'd sort of spent quite a long time worrying about what I was going to do, because I was thinking, you know, do do I actually have any traumas that are deep enough that, you know, I have to inflict them on anyone else. <laughs> and I started reading this essay that I got. Um, I, I got it from a, a bookshop in Edinburgh was doing a thing where you could sort of send them 20 quid and they'd send you three random books. And one of them was this essay um, called Denialism. And 
I've been in a real slump of reading and just thinking during lockdown. I hadn't been able to get through very much at all. And I started reading that and it just really clarified and brought together a lot of things for me. And similar to James, just the process of reading that, the thoughts it triggered and the things that I then pulled together helped to sort of clarify my understanding about a lot of things. And it's, yeah, it was really helpful. Um, in terms of the book itself, it's it's a funny one because we I don't want to be so sort of facile as to say here's a book that's going to give you a load of solutions. Yeah. To, to do, we didn't. You know, it's not a kind of you know hum for five minutes and do some colouring in, you'll be fine. Get back to work. But we just wanted to, yeah, have these voices and say these are these are experiences that people have you'll relate to some of it and but these things deserve to be discussed taken seriously and there are creative approaches to how we tackle them it's not about making you better but it's about helping you to understand realize sort of appreciate what's what whatever your own particular struggle is I think it's important to say that, yeah, if you're looking for solutions in a book, you're probably looking in the wrong place, you know. Uh, There are other places to go for help. Yeah, and and it's a funny one as well. Like, people have sort of contacted me to to say, um, they say, I wouldn't say I enjoyed trauma, but I'm glad I read it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, certainly. It's it's not about... you know, I won't, I won't say enjoy it, but I hope it speaks to you in some way. <laughs> well, the, 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 what I've read so far, which I read for, for today, so it has spoken to me, so I'm glad I read it. And, and thank you very much for doing this. Huh? It's been a pleasure oh, thanks to talk for to having you us. Saturday thank you. morning. Thank you. Uh, thanks, guys. Hope yeah. Hopefully we, we can speak again in person at some point. <laughs> cool. Yeah, definitely. Look forward to it. Take care, guys.